From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Between 1526 and 1543... Hans Holbein the Younger drew and painted portraits of the elite of the Tudor court. He created preparatory sketches, full-size paintings and miniatures. He was commissioned by the family of Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, and Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk. Politicians such as Thomas Cromwell and Richard Southwell, ambassadors like Thomas Wyatt, and soldiers such as George Cobham were among his sitters. And then there are the women, Anne Lovell, Anne Boleyn, Lady Elliot, Jane Seymour, the Countess of Surrey, and many more. Each portrait seems to have begun with a drawing taken at a live sitting, and we can almost see how long those sittings were in the resulting sketches. Some are more worked up, others focus on the face, which is surrounded by only the brief outlines of the clothes, and in one there are no clothes at all. There is currently an exhibition of these drawings at Buckingham Palace. It shows the drawings that are in the Royal Collection Trust and it allows us to see Holbein's process at work. It also feels like coming face to face with the men and women of Henry VIII's court. The curator of the exhibition is Kate Hurd. She is Senior Curator of Prints and Drawings at the Royal Collection Trust and the author of its accompanying catalogue, Holbein at the Tudor Court. Kate and I are joined by not just the Tudor's returning guest, Dr Elizabeth Goldring. Dr Goldring is an honorary reader at the University of Warwick and a fellow of both the Society of Antiquaries and the Royal Historical Society. She's an expert on Tudor art and Tudor court culture and is currently writing a biography of Hans Holbein the Younger. Her other books include Nicholas Hilliard, Life of an Artist, which won the Apollo Prize. I couldn't have two better companions with whom to go around this exhibition and encounter these Tudor faces. Thank you both so much for joining me, or indeed for inviting me to see this wonderful exhibition. We're starting in a room, strangely enough, that doesn't have anything by Holbein in it. Kate, can you give a sense of the context of European artists at the time that Holbein's starting to paint? Yes, the section of the exhibition is really the world that Holbein stepped into in 1526 when he arrived in England. So everything you see around you, we think, was owned by Henry VII or Henry VIII. So these would have been on the walls of the Tudor court. So we have portraits from across Europe, Italian sculpture in terracotta, paintings by Italian artists or from the French court. So you get a sense of this vibrant Tudor court with culture from across Europe and the Tudors establishing themselves on the international stage as a dynasty to be reckoned with. Elizabeth, how does Holbein's work compare with the sort of things that we can see around us in terms of quality or technique or even to sort of the way likenesses are created? An awful lot of Holbein's contemporaries commented on how realistic, how lifelike his portraits seemed. 
And I think if you look around at what is on the walls here in the way of portraits, you can see how by comparison Holbein's portraits may have seemed more three-dimensional, more of a sense of individual personality perhaps comes through. I think when we today look at a portrait by Holbein, we feel, rightly or wrongly, that we really know the sitter, that we're being granted some sort of special internal access to their personality, their mental processes. Now that may or may not be the case, but I think the genius of Holbein is that he invites and encourages us to believe that. And I think that was something that not very many artists in the North at least had learned how to do prior to Holbein. I'm definitely going to ask you how much you think he does do that when we come to look at some of his portraiture. But I suppose we also get a sense of the techniques being used and perhaps it might be possible to give some sense of the way that artists were creating their work before Holbein. I think that what is fascinating is that Holbein is doing exactly as Elizabeth says, something completely different, but he's doing it exactly with the techniques and the materials that everyone else is using. So he's taught by his father, he uses those tricks that he's taught by his father to create likenesses, he uses exactly the same materials as artists across Europe. He's doing something incredible with them. Let's go through here. We have Holbein arriving at the Tudor court, or at least in England, perhaps I should say more accurately, in 1526. But he has, of course, got a career before that. And you touched on that in this corner, Kate, by looking at some of the work that predated that. Can you tell us a bit about the portraits we're looking at? Yes, at the centre of the wall there, you can see a portrait by Holbein of Johannes Froben, the Basel publisher, which is just a lovely portrait of this very frank, very ordinary looking man, if I can put it that way. You get a sense that he will roll up his sleeves and get working inking his press. Next to it, you get that wonderful portrait of Erasmus, who was the great writer and thinker in Europe, the great best-selling author, who was resident in Basel and Froben was publishing his works. And it's fascinating because they are a pair and we think that Froben commissioned the copy of the Erasmus portrait on the right to act as a friendship diptych with his own portrait on the left there. So you get Holbein in Basel in this very intellectual circle, very creative circle, and it's Erasmus particularly that seems to facilitate his move to London. Elizabeth, it feels that Holbein comes to us fully formed. <laughs> we see him at the Tudor Court creating these masterpieces. It feels like you know, he was born as an artist. Do you see a great development in style from these pictures of the 1520s through to his death in the 1540s? Well, I think that you are right in many ways that by the time he arrives in England, he has more than hit his stride. I think a real turning point for him is around 1523 in Basel when he is asked to portray Erasmus not once but twice and copies and variations on these two templates he creates for Erasmus are disseminated to various of Erasmus' friends and fellow humanists across the continent and in a sense from that moment Holbein doesn't really look back. Undoubtedly, there was a period in the 1510s when he first arrived as a young man in Basel from his native Augsburg when he was still finding his feet. There's not a huge amount of 
information that survives about his whereabouts, his day-to-day -day activities during those years. There's quite a lot of debate about various extant works, whether they can or cannot be attributed in whole or in part to Holbein. There's a certain amount of confusion about his own early, slightly unformed oeuvre and that of his brother, who seems to have died quite young, their father. So I think a lot remains to be known, may perhaps never be known, about Holbein's early years, that sort of process of learning and working out the kinks, as it were. There's so much we don't know about his early education and training. The assumption, and I'm sure it's correct, is that Holbein received his initial training in his father's workshop in Augsburg. His father, also called Hans Holbein, was a leading sacred painter in Augsburg. Quite a lot of Holbein's working practices, the practice of keeping and filing away all of his drawings is something that he seems to have got from his father. But what's interesting about Holbein is I think that over the course of his life, he never seems to stop learning or absorbing new influences. For example, we know that he goes to France in 1524 and almost certainly comes into contact with the works of Leonardo and Leonardo's followers. Leonardo, of course, had spent the last couple of years of his life at the court of Francois Premier. And then suddenly, back in Basel in 1526, Holbein is producing a lot of works that seem to echo very direct compositional aspects, or even in some cases, techniques associated with Leonardo. And a bit of that even carries over in England. Aspects of the more group portrait seem to nod to Leonardo. And I think you can trace this through Holbein's life, always alert to new influences, looking for new ways to introduce these latest influences into his own work. One more thing before we turn to that catalogue of drawings is that we're standing in a room with a very big, magnificent tapestry, and it reminds us that whilst we preface the paintings above all else, actually, at the time, it was tapestries that were considered to be the sort of premier form of artistic endeavour. They were certainly the most expensive, by a long shot, form of wall decoration in this period. And if you look at inventories of Henry VIII's holdings of Cardinal Wolsey's, there aren't a huge number of inventories that survive from the early Tudor period, but to the extent that they do survive, it's clear that tapestries were really the high status, highly valued, form of wall decoration in this period. And I think Henry VIII, in terms of how he came to use Holbein, initially it was as a divisor of ephemeral court art for court festivals, as someone who provided designs to the royal goldsmiths for plate and jewelry. So I think it's important to remember that though, as you say, we put painting on a pedestal, painting is in transition in this period in England. And for Henry, at least initially, having a completely magnificent court festival or very lavish table setting or fantastic jewels being worn by your queen was just as good a way to telegraph your importance on the world stage, maybe even, in Henry's mind, a better way than having your portrait painted, though I think that this changes over time and once Henry sees what Holbein can do in the realm of painted portraits. He still always does those things, doesn't he? He's still always being drawn on to provide designs for revels or, you know, the coronation of Anne Boleyn or jewels and that sort of thing. Absolutely. That's core of the role of any court artist, is to provide all sorts of 
designs for metalwork. There's a design for a fireplace in the British Museum, which is wonderful. And all these things that we see other court artists doing as well. So while the Royal Collection has this incredible group of portraits, which is really the heart of the exhibition, we can also reflect some of the other work he did through looking at the work of other artists. Well, let's turn to look at some of these amazing portraits. We're going to start with the pictures of Thomas More's family. And we've got six sketches in front of us that Holbein drew. And what is so stunning about these is that you really feel that you're seeing a moment in time because there's something sort of ephemeral about the drawings. Tell us about them, Kate. These are individual studies of the individual sitters, the members of Thomas More's family that were taken by Holbein in 1526 or 1527 to create a group portrait, which was one of his earliest works in England. So he will have sat each member of the family down and studied them entirely in coloured chalks. And what you see here is just done in coloured chalks, which he's manipulated with incredible effect. He's used a wet brush to create texture. If you look at the drawing of John Moore, he's used a wet, diluted chalk to create the face tone. And then when that's dry, just taken dry red chalk to create the mottled veins in his cheeks. They really are the most incredibly alive portraits. And do you feel when you look at these, Elizabeth, that you're seeing a likeness? That sense we were talking earlier about character coming through. It's so tempting to read character into these portraits. How much can we? I agree. It's very tempting. It's so inviting. It's almost impossible not to. And there is, I think, a real immediacy with the chalk drawings, in some ways almost more than you sometimes feel perhaps with the finished paintings where they survive. Obviously in many cases the finished paintings have not survived. Quite a lot of them do have marginal notes to self from Holbein. There's a real sense of almost reaching through time and being in the room with Holbein in the set of this sense of being able to see from the marginal notes and scribbles in any available scrap of paper, Holbein thinking and working through problems. And the sitters do just always seem very immediate, very present. But of course, that's part of the artist's job to make us buy into that illusion. But it's also something about what they're doing. I mean, John Moore is sitting reading a book. And so, you know, he's just getting on with the reading whilst this artist does what he has to do. He doesn't know who this man is, but, you know, he'll put up with it. And Cicely Heron is looking away in a kind of sense that conveys, at least to me, modesty or something like that. And possibly striking a Leonardo-esque pose. This is one of the examples of a work that Holbein executed not long after he had encountered examples of Leonardo's work and the work of Leonardo's followers that seems to show some sort of encounter with examples of Leonardo's work. Let us go through to the next room. After more, we have certain early patrons that you pick up on in this exhibition, like Sir Henry Guilford, who was controller of the household and a great patron of Catherine of Aragon, as we can even see in the portrait. And we have here a Holbein's sketch of Henry Guilford and then the finished portrait. And we've got that in a few places in this room. Can we talk about the difference between the two and what we can learn from comparing them? Yes, this is one of three examples where we have the preparatory drawing and a finished portrait in the exhibition. And it's really exciting to put the two next to each other. In this case, you see Guilford and the way that Holbein has taken the drawing at a sitting in that same technique as he uses for the Moore family group, the coloured chalks on the blank sheet of paper, 
to the same size that he's going to use on the finished painting, but he's lengthened Guildford's face in the finished portrait. And studies have shown that he did that by moving his cartoon, his preparatory drawing, down the panel as he traced it onto the panel so that he lengthened Guildford's face and it gives Guildford more of an air of authority, which relates to Guildford's history, perhaps, his attempts to establish himself at court as a senior court figure. That's fascinating because it speaks to this question that we always ask, I think, when we're looking at pictures by Holborn, at least I always ask, which is, how much am I seeing this person as they really looked? And how much am I seeing a flattering image? I mean, it's got to be close enough for the patron to have believed it looked like them. But, you know, I'm very happy to accept pictures where someone has airbrushed me to look better. <laughs> and perhaps there's a sense of that going on in this picture. Holbein refines and refines and refines, and that's something which comes out throughout the exhibition, that he's constantly refining his line and making things better. He's never a make-do artist. He's always a make-it-better-and-better. Better. Because we don't know what Guildford looked like, and we don't know what any of these people looked like, we don't know whether he's trying to create the most accurate image or to strike that balance between accuracy and flattery. I will say that we often talk about the images being lifelike, and I don't think that means necessarily that they looked like the sitters, but they look alive. That idea that Guildford could turn around to face us and step out of the frame and have a conversation with us. And that's Holbein, this master of illusion. He can make these sitters in the paintings look as if they were alive. Exactly, but I think the starting point has to be the assumption that any portrait, but particularly any Renaissance portrait, is to some extent an artificial construct. For example, the infant future Edward VI, prodigious though he may have been, may not have been able to sit upright and unaided and hold the pose that Holbein captures in the famous painting in the National Gallery in Washington. I think one has to assume that liberties are taken in all sorts of ways with Holbein's portraits and indeed all Renaissance portraits. Absolutely. Can we talk about this one over here, which is one I've got a particular interest in, previously identified as Simon George, but you have a new identification, Kate. Talk us through this picture. Yes, it's a suggestion that this may not be Simon George. He's identified as Simon George due to the inscription you can see on the bottom there, which is not Holbein's inscription, that's a later inscription, which identifies him as S. George of Cornwall. And on that basis, he has plausibly been said to be a man called Simon George. I think it's more likely that he's actually Sir George Cornwall, that this is a fudged inscription in the 18th century. And if he is George Cornwall, we know an awful lot more about him than we know about Simon George, who doesn't really occur in the contemporary records. So George Cornwall is a captain of a ship called the Sweepstake. He is convicted of murder and a number of people is able to buy his pardon. But most importantly for the drawing, is the fact that the finished painting survives in Frankfurt. And it's this wonderful roundel, it's the most gorgeous painting, but it shows the sitter holding a carnation, which may suggest that it's a marriage portrait. So if this is George Cornwall, then this drawing would date from 1543 when he married Mary Bridges, which makes it one of the last of Holbein's drawings shortly before his death. And I think that's fascinating because if you compare the Frankfurt painting with the original drawing, you can see again that process of iteration, that process of change. The beard is longer. Holbein has made a number of alterations to the image between the drawing and the painting. And this really shows us Holbein doing this throughout his life. There's no sense that he's training and finally gets it. He's someone who constantly improves and strives to perfection throughout his life. 
And it does feel that he improves George by the final version of the painting, by comparison to this preparatory drawing, at least. So in terms of that sense of whether this is done to please the person who's paying yes, for the picture. Yes. This one feels, to me at least, like it has made the man look more handsome in the final <laughs> resort. I'm sure Kate's right that it's a balance, isn't it? I think Holbein was nothing if not pragmatic. I think you do not survive all of the religious upheaval in Basel, or indeed in this country, without being someone who is quite pragmatic and knows how to get along with one's patrons. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. talk about scale and the sort of range of Holbein's work because we're standing next to a picture of Catherine Brandon, Duchess of Suffolk, the daughter of Marina de Salinas, one of Catherine of Aragon's women, and she herself has two children who are painted by Holbein in miniature, and we see their beautiful miniatures here as well. It seems amazing that one artist can operate at these two scales, let alone what we're talking about the Whitehall mural or the barber surgeons, these enormous pictures. How do we see differences in technique between these two different sizes of portrait? And do you see miniatures, because you're such an expert on miniatures when it comes to Hilliard, etc. do you see miniatures really beginning in this period of time? Is Holbein learning them from somebody? So Holbein happens just by chance to be in England from late 1526 through late spring, early summer, 1528. And it's in that period of time, the independent portrait miniature, which is to say the freestanding miniature detached from the manuscript page, suddenly emerges seemingly out of nowhere at both the English and the French courts. So Holbein would have been in England at the time that suddenly Henry VIII and Francois Premier start sending miniatures back and forth as diplomatic gifts. And the Hornbouts are here producing miniatures for Henry. The Clouet are producing miniatures for Francois. So we don't know exactly what exposure Holbein may have had to these miniatures, this brand new art form, during his first visit to England. But given how alive Holbein seems to have been to new influences, I'm sure his radar must have picked up on the fact that something exciting was happening. Carol Van Mander says, that Holbein learnt the art of miniature painting from Lucas Hornbout. Now, Van Mander is often disparaged as an unreliable source, and it's true that not everything Van Mander says is accurate. But I have often found, particularly when Van Mander is talking about episodes that take place in England, that he is, if not dead on, then certainly there's more than a grain of truth in what he says. He seems to have had very good sources 
when reporting on his northern artists' escapades in England. So I don't think there's any reason to doubt that. Whether that instruction was formal or informal, whether it occurred during Holbein's first visit to England, 1526-28, or during the second visit, which begins in 1532, or a bit of both, remains unclear. But I don't think there's any reason to doubt that there is this debt to Hornbout. I completely agree. He clearly picks it up and runs with it. Mm. And this idea of difference in scale, it just shows what a fantastic artist he is, that he can work at so many different scales and in so many different mediums so convincingly. Yes. So we obviously don't have his practice miniatures when he's first trying, but he clearly very quickly creates these most incredible pieces like the Brandon Boys. They're just exquisite mm. examples of the form. They absolutely are. And we don't know if he created preliminary drawings for his miniatures? If so, were they this sort of size? Did he have a sort of standard size of drawing that is that could be scaled down for a miniature if need be? We just don't know. And in terms of size of the preparatory drawings, we're talking about the size of American standard sheet of paper, I would say, slightly smaller than A4, slightly smaller therefore than lifelike. But that gives us a sense of the size of the majority of the drawings. Now, we've got some insight into technique here. You've got this wonderful way of displaying a preparatory drawing of Thomas More Kate. And this is really interesting. Tell us about what we can see here. This is a drawing of More made for the portrait that's now in New York at the Frick Collection. And it's the one example in the Royal Collection, so the one example in the exhibition, where the image has been transferred to the panel through pouncing and pricking which you can see if you look through the drawing essentially you can see there are holes in it we've displayed it double-sided so you can see those prick marks more clearly on the back what Holbein would have done is put that drawing onto a second sheet of paper and then pushed a pin through the lines he wanted to transfer so when he'd finished doing so he had a second sheet of paper that just had pin pricks in it he did then put that on the panel and rubbed chalk or charcoal dust through the holes essentially creating a join the dots Though, being Holbein, he never does just join the dots and make the paintings, he keeps refining it, but it's one of the means of transfer of drawing to painting. Now, Holbein has his first visit to England in the 1520s, but he comes back in around 1532, we think, and then seems to be drawing everybody, or at least it feels like that. And we have all of these sketches of people of the court. Before we talk more about them, can we talk about how we know who they are? There is very helpfully on a number of the drawings an inscription that names the sitter. And these are in an 18th century hand, but we know that they are based on earlier inscriptions made in the mid-16th century by a man called Sir John Cheek, who was tutor to Edward VI, who would have known many of the sitters. And it seems to be the sitters who Cheek would have known who have their names written on them. And there is always debate and a lot of these identifications have been tested and in most cases they have been shown to be absolutely correct. The 18th century inscriptions were put on the drawings themselves when the drawings were taken out of their album in the early 18th century for Queen Caroline, who wanted them on the walls of her closets at Richmond and then at Kensington, and she thankfully got those inscriptions recorded so we still know who the sitters are. And that means that we feel like we're seeing the cast of people at the Tudor court. But in actual fact, there must have been many more than the drawings that survived. Do you feel like there's been a selection process, a curation? <laughs> Presumably, Holbein himself did not save every single drawing. Most of what we are looking at in this room and most of what survives are predominantly head and shoulders images. 
but with most of the emphasis on capturing the facial likeness, often to the extent that any costume is shown. It's sketched in quite roughly, and sometimes colours and fabrics are just indicated by a handwritten note to self on Holbein's part. But presumably, given that so often the finished paintings, at least where they survive, are in half length and show hands, have various props, presumably Holbein did have to do some separate studies of hands. There are, in the case of Erasmus, some studies of his hands that are now in the Louvre. That can't have been a one-off. Holbein must have done that as standard practice with sitters if the hands were going to be portrayed in the finished painting. And as Kate said, Holbein was clearly a perfectionist, not someone who was ever content for it to be just good enough. So there must often have been many iterations of individual drawings, and we have a limited supply of those, which very fortunately have survived, but I suspect it's the tip of the iceberg. And with certain patrons, for example, Moore seems possibly to have been quite a fuss pot, also Erasmus. One can imagine there might have been a number of changes of ideas about pose, props, all sorts. You can imagine lots of pieces of paper getting thrown in the recycling bin or its 16th century equivalent when the patron decided to shift gears. Yes, it's really fascinating wondering about what has not come down to us. Yes, Thomas More being exacting doesn't seem surprising, does it really? Yes. So we know that he has a royal patron, but who else is paying Holbein? To draw them. All sorts of people and we're standing in the centre of this gallery now surrounded by these drawings and paintings and miniatures of Tudor sitters and they range from writers and poets to country gentlemen to court officials both senior and relatively junior. You get ladies-in-waiting, you get members of the nobility but remember, you are seeing the elite. Holbein's portraits wouldn't have been cheap and these are people who can afford portraits by Holbein. Can we talk about a particularly strange one? Because it seems that he couldn't afford clothes. I'm sure that's not the case. But Charles Wingfield, this is an unusual drawing, isn't it? <laughs> this is a complete conundrum. It's one of a number of conundrums we have on display. He is bare-chested and wears simply some sort of pendant, is it a medallion, on a ribbon round his neck. We know very little about Charles Wingfield. As a sitter, he's identified as Charles Wingfield because of that inscription. It says Charles Wingfield Knight. This is one of the problematic ones because we don't know Charles Wingfield was ever knighted. The Wingfields were a very large family. It could be another member of the family. Often with Holbein's drawings, you get a sense that this is how the sitter has turned up to be drawn, not necessarily as they're going to look in the finished painting. But Holbein has gone to some trouble to record the details of Wingfield's torso which makes me think that this would have been reflected in some way in the finished painting. He hasn't just left it blank or scribbled it. He's really gone to some trouble. I wonder if this is some sort of sporting victory being recorded, but it's a complete mystery. I agree. It does seem that Holbein has gone to great effort to record the sitter's torso. I wonder if it could be a study for a miniature designed for a loved one. And in fact, I've often wondered if the object hanging around the sitter's neck is 
meant to reference a miniature of said loved one. In many ways, it seems to me to anticipate an image like Hilliard's, obviously much later, young man in flames in the V&A from about 1600. But that sort of erotic image that you would really only get in miniature format at this stage. Well, there are lots of wonderful pictures we could speak about here, and I particularly love the Thomas Wyatt, but we are going to go on because there's more to see. Well, let's go over here to look at some pictures of the royal family. We'll come back to Henry in a second. But let's first of all talk about some of the women. So we're standing in front of a sketch, a preparatory drawing labelled Anne Boleyn. And there's been lots of people over the years who have said that this wasn't Anne. I myself am fairly convinced that it is, and I want to know all your thoughts and to talk about <laughs> this particular picture and why it has been identified as Anne and why it hasn't. I think there are all sorts of pieces of evidence you can bring to bear on whether this shows Anne Boleyn or not. And to me, again personally, I agree it's Anne Boleyn, partly because of the weight of that evidence, all these little pieces of the jigsaw that come together. And the first of those is that inscription, and we've talked about these inscriptions a few times. Cheek would have known who Anne Boleyn was. So the fact that in the 18th century, based on a 16th century inscription, this was identified as Anne Boleyn, that's a good start. There's been some work on her dress, some really interesting dress history done that's been tied to items of clothing that Anne Boleyn is known to have had. There are, for me, two very other interesting facts about the drawing. One of the reasons for debating whether it is Anne Boleyn is the colour of the hair. And the sitter in this drawing has brown eyes, but her hair is very light. We looked at it under a microscope as part of the preparation for the exhibition, and the drawing is a chalk drawing. Like most of those in the exhibition, there will have been some rubbing of the surface. And what seems likely is that because we know that Holbein built up his hair colours in layers of different colours to create the tone he wanted, and he started with light chalks and then built up the darker chalks on top to darken the hair. Possibly quite a bit of that darker shading from the top has disappeared, so what you're seeing is probably a lighter hair colour than she would originally have had. But I also find the back of the drawing very interesting because this is the only drawing in the exhibition that has something on the back which in itself is unusual for Renaissance drawings. Usually paper's expensive, an artist will use as much as they can. But this has the Wyatt arms on the back. I think it's really interesting that Henry Wyatt, who's one of Holbein's patrons, dies in November 1536, shortly after Anne's executed. And you start to wonder if this became a scrap piece of paper. It would have been known that no longer would any portraits of Anne Boleyn be commissioned. Unlike Jane Seymour, we've got the drawing of Jane Seymour next to it. That was constantly used for portraits, but you can imagine Holbein turning it over and using it for a different project at that point. It's always up for debate. That's the excitement about Holbein, is there's lots of discussions to be had, but to me this is a good candidate for Anne Boleyn. I absolutely agree, and I'm so pleased that Kate's examinations of the drawing under the microscope have shed new light on the apparent hair problem and what to do with the fact that this sitter appears now to have light hair but I think that's a very compelling explanation the rubbing because it is abraded in that section and certainly everything else about the drawing seems to make sense as an image of Anne. I mean we know from eyewitness accounts that at her coronation she was wearing a gown that fastened high on the neck because she was suffering from scrofula and the sitter here not only has 
the slight bulge beneath the chin that you would expect of someone suffering from scrofula but also has her gown fastened high on the neck. There are documentary sources indicating that Henry had ordered from the royal tailor a gown and a cloak very similar to these in about June 1532, something like that. So there are a lot of pieces of circumstantial evidence that would really point to it being Anne. And I think, of course, there are a few cases where we know that the inscriptions are inaccurate, but those tend to be for minor courtiers that Sir John Cheek never would have met. But the idea that he wouldn't have known who Anne was or what Anne looked like just doesn't really seem to hold water. So I'm delighted to see the sitter on the wall and identified as Anne. I think, as Kate rightly says, there's so much we can never know with absolute certainty. But I think in this case, an awful lot of pieces of evidence do convincingly point in the direction of it being Anne. Given that the evidence is so compelling, Given that we have someone who knew what she looked like identifying this as her, as you say, it seems implausible that he'd have got that wrong. What is the reason for not identifying it as her subsequently? It seems to me the only possible explanation is that she just doesn't look pretty enough. I don't know what you think. I mean, the same could be said of Jane Seymour, perhaps. I mean, we're next to Jane Seymour, and this is an amazing and bigger preparatory drawing. But it gives us wonderful amounts of information about Jane, doesn't it? Yes, this is, as you say, a much larger drawing. It would have been the result of a sitting or sittings that related both to the production of independent freestanding oil portraits like the one now in Vienna, but also to Jane's life-sized full-length representation in the Whitehall mural where she is shown with Henry VIII and also with Henry's parents. That, of course, no longer survives, but we know from various written accounts and from a later copy what it looked like. Yes, images of Jane would have been, at least for the brief period of her reign, circulating, I think, quite widely and in a way that hadn't been done before. Kate has mentioned on various previous occasions that she has wondered if perhaps this drawing of Anne might not have been a study for a miniature. Certainly there are no oil paintings, any paintings that we know of that are extant that we can link to that drawing. But what's interesting is that Henry doesn't seem to have thought about the idea of painted portraits as a means of consolidating power, legitimizing his reign, legitimizing his latest marriage until the mid-1530s when he marries Jane and suddenly we have the Whitehall mural and we've got various images spun off from it. But a few years earlier, when arguably he needed just as badly to legitimise his marriage to Anne, no one seems to have had the idea that, oh, painted portraits could help do that. We could have paired portraits of Henry and Anne and get people to hang those on the walls of their long galleries. But that doesn't seem to have been a concept. And then suddenly we have this turning point in about 1536-1537 where a penny drops and suddenly I think painting and portraiture take on newfound significance in Henry's eyes. Well, we must talk about Henry then, and we've got several different places we could go here. You've got a copy of the Whitehall mural that survives. This is a famous picture we all know. And yet, also next to it, you've got a picture that was not, as far as we know, by Holbein, the Field of Cloth of Gold, but it's here for a particular purpose. Can you talk, Kate, about the reason this is here and the sort of way that Holbein's image of Henry becomes the image of Henry? Yes, as you say, the Whitehall mural doesn't survive, but. Holbein's image is 
copied again and again and it's fascinating that we don't have an autograph of Henry by Holbein in the Royal Collection but I think it is because those paintings were made to be given away, they were made for other people, he didn't necessarily want a picture of himself on the wall, he wanted to use that as a projection of power. This painting was made we think in the mid-1540s but it shows an event in 1520, the Field of the Cloth of Gold. And it's the most fantastic painting and at the bottom left hand corner you can see Henry VIII riding in on a white horse and his head looks slightly uncomfortable, is the best way of putting it. If you look very closely, a circle has been cut out of the canvas and a copy of Holbein's portrait of Henry has been inserted. We don't know the date at which that happened and whether that was because there was damage to the canvas, whether this was an updating to bring this image of Henry in line with Holbein's prototype, but it does show that Holbein's Henry is the Henry we all think of. And we should add that this painting has been beautifully conserved. I knew this painting very well before conservation and there's so much in it that you can now see that wasn't at all possible to see before this unveiling really. I mean the cloth of gold shimmers, you can see the town, you can see the cannon smoke in ways that you never could before. It's been the most fantastic project. The paintings conservation team at Royal Collection Trust have worked on this over quite a period to reveal this original paintwork and have also done a lot of work on how the painting was created. So that work has revealed a lot about the team of artists who worked on it, the way that the layers of the painting were built up. It's been a real revelation. I also would like to ask you about the paintings of Henry's children. So we have a couple of sketches here and we have some later pictures that follow Holbein in creating these children. These are very delicate sketches that we're looking at of Prince Edward and the Lady Mary and not always identified as Princess Mary. How did you decide to give her this appellation? I didn't see any reason to query the 16th century identification. It seems to me likely that this is Princess Mary later, Mary I. It's one of the more difficult drawings to look at. It's quite rubbed and faded and a lot of the surface chalk has been lost, but if you look at it very closely, it is a wonderfully compelling drawing. So in the same way that the inscription on Anne Boleyn gives us one of the clues for this being Anne Boleyn, I think there's a really good case to make that this is the daughter of Henry VIII. How do you compare the work of Holbein and his practice with those pictures that follow him of Edward or Elizabeth or the family of Henry VIII which has all the children? Well obviously often Edward in particular is painted in a manner that very self-consciously evokes Holbein's iconic Whitehall mural image of Henry. Edward becomes mini-me for posterity I think in many of these paintings and of course as Kate was mentioning earlier and you were mentioning earlier it really is Holbein's image of Henry that becomes the image of Henry for the ages. Hornbout, of course, had portrayed Henry in miniature, but that's not the image that has stood the test of time. But I think it's interesting and worth remembering that though Holbein's image of Henry, that full face, pugnacious, barrel-chested, hands-on-hip stance, is the one that later artists adopted it's, I think, not necessarily, almost certainly not the one that most people in Henry's and Holbein's own lifetimes would have known. Yes, if you had access to the royal palaces or to the long galleries of the great and the good, you would have seen perhaps a version of that image. But I think for the average person, probably 
the image of Henry by Holbein that would have been most familiar would have been the title page of the Coverdale Bible, which is a not unrelated image. It's still a pretty pugnacious looking Henry. But I think just bearing in mind the gap between what we and most of the generations that have come after Henry and Holbein associate in our mind's eye, it's very much a painted image after Holbein. But I think the average person in the 1530s and 1540s wouldn't, of course, have had access to those painted images, which is, I think, worth remembering. Well, thank you very much. It is a good place to end. And this exhibition is wonderful. It's running till April, and those who are listening to this must come and visit it because it is exquisite. This opportunity to be up close with these pictures, these drawings, it does feel like stepping back in time, doesn't it? It really does. I think with the drawings, there's just this tremendous sense of connection to Holbein, his sitters, and also to all the people in the hundreds of years since who have collected and catalogued these added inscriptions to them. It's really rather thrilling. Well, Kate, well done to you and to the whole team and the conservators. It's been a real joy to see them. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just The Tudors. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.